the big question here is, is it two scenes, two chapters, or one scene, two chapters? So that's kind of right. what the case study is about. Originally in my analysis, my latest analysis before our conversation last night, just yesterday, you guys, just yesterday, like mere hours away, we're under 24 hours. I had it as two scenes, two chapters. I do think that there is an argument for that. I'm not convinced it's the strongest one anymore. So I think that that's what we really want to dig into. Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help you find the best literary agent for your business and writing career. In today's episode, we're going to turn back to what makes a great first chapter, and we're diving deep into the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I'm really excited to share this episode with you because not only am I a huge Harry Potter fan, and not only do I think this is a particularly interesting example about what makes an engaging opening, but I'm also joined by my good friend and fellow book coach and editing companion, Savannah Gilbo, who has come back to join me for this first chapter analysis across the Harry Potter series. You might have heard about Savannah before on her amazing podcast, Fiction Writing Made Easy. Everyone should go check out after this episode. You can learn more about Savannah and the great ways that she's helping writers finish their books in the show notes. For today, we look at the big picture of chapter one using seven key questions that help us determine this. And then we zoom into the first scene to see how it works and how the structure unfolds. Here we go. It is a plot, a plot to make most terrible things happen. What terrible things? Who's plotting them? Hey, Savannah, I'm so excited to have you back with me today. We're going to analyze the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And Savannah and I were digging into our discussion briefly, but not in-depthly last night. And once again... We have spent a long time analyzing the scene and have been deciding maybe that's not the way that the scene is broken down. So it's going to be a great discussion. I'm so excited to have you here today. Yes. Hello. And thank you for having me. We, I think our text message bill is probably due to Harry Potter. So back up. I'm not your editor on this book for the masterwork. However, we have talked about Harry Potter and the unique openings of some of the books over and over again. So I'm actually really excited to dig into Chamber of Secrets because I have not worked with you on that before. Yes. My editor for Chamber of Secrets is the wonderful Ben Wilkinson, and he has really helped me a lot and spent a lot of time helping dig into this with me. And he's also part of our Harry Potter group that we've mentioned before. There's four of us, Anna, Ben, Renee, and me are the four. So that we're working on through the series. And like Savannah said, this is going to be new. It'll be fun to get new perspectives and to break it down in new ways. And before we jump into it, I think it's worth talking about what chapter we're actually talking about. So remember that these episodes are based on first chapters. We're looking at first chapters because we want to learn what makes a first chapter engaging and what would catch the attention of a literary agent, of a reader, of an editor, what's really going to get us to read forward. And what's super interesting in particular about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is that this is the second book in a series. So we've already had the success of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which we talked about in the first Harry Potter, first chapter breakdowns that we've been doing. 
And now we're looking at the second book. Just to kind of reemphasize, we are going to go over the big picture of a story. We will go through the seven key questions we use to analyze first chapters and assess what makes it interesting and engaging. And Savannah's going to walk us through that first. And then we're going to go into the small picture and look at the actual scene level and how it is working on a fundamental level. I'm going to give you a brief summary for both chapter one and chapter two, even though our discussion will heavily be focused on chapter one. For chapter one, this is the worst birthday. And a summary of chapter one is Harry Potter endures a miserable 12th birthday at Privet Jive. In the garden, he thinks about his Hogwarts friends who seem to have forgotten him. He also spots two giant eyes in a hench, but Dudley interrupts him before he can investigate the eyes. Dudley taunts Harry and Harry pretends to do magic. And because he does this, of course, he's punished because he's living with the Dursleys who despise magic and all forms. And then the second chapter, we're going to get into an event with a beloved, beloved character of mine and many Harry Potter fans. This, of course, is the introduction of Dobby. Chapter two is called Dobby's Morning. And this is essentially what happens in that chapter. A house elf named Dobby warns Harry not to return to Hogwarts this year. Terrible things are going to happen. And because of this, Harry needs to pry more information out of Dobby, but unfortunately gets none because Dobby is a house elf. And as soon as he gets close to revealing information, he punishes himself, which of course causes noise to the point where basically Harry chases Dobby down into the kitchen. The Masons are in the living room. And there's, of course, the prized cake that Aunt Petunia has baked. And Dobby essentially warns Harry that he will do something if Harry doesn't promise not to go back to Hogwarts. When Harry refuses to promise that, Dobby levitates the cake drops it on the mason's head. Since magic has been used in the Dursley house, it's flagged that underage wizardry has been going on. So Harry's warned and he eventually gets locked in his bedroom, even to the point of bars on the window. Let's look at the big picture first and then we'll tackle the small picture and how it's analyzed. Right. And so to do that, we're going to look at the same thing we did last time, which is those seven questions that Paula Meunier gives us in her book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, How to Craft Story Openings That Sell. So if you haven't picked up this book yet, it is well worth grabbing both Abigail and I love it. And question number one is about genre. So Abigail, what kind of story is this based on the first chapter? We have a 12-year-old protagonist and it's still middle grade fantasy. There is a specific freak out on the Dursley's part when we mention magic. Harry mentions magic. Not even in the sense of actual magic, but he wants Dudley to say, please, say the magic word, say the magic word. But the Dursleys freak out and you kind of get context in the sense that magic is something that the Dursleys absolutely despise in every way. And Harry is kind of like the epitome of what magic is. So it's a huge discussion there, but we don't actually see magic used like we do in the first chapter of the prologue in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. We right. do see magic used in chapter two, but we are very aware that magic is a real thing, especially since a lot of backstory is shared here in context of the first yes. book. And we understand what Hogwarts is, and it's kind of a recap. Another really interesting thing that's done here, because I don't think that the amount of backstory that is shared in the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Chambers of Secrets would work as a first chapter of any other book if it wasn't the sequel to the first book in a series. Yes. And something that's interesting about that is I read a lot of adult fantasy series 
And I was thinking about this last night. I'm like, okay, so is this an appropriate amount of backstory for any series, whether it's middle grade, young adult or adult? And then I started thinking, I wonder if we have that kind of learning curve we talked about last time with world building, but also with backstory where it's like, we do need to kind of spell it out maybe a little more because we're in middle grade, whereas something like this may not be the best option for an adult fantasy, Mm -hmm. even though we need to recap still, if it's like book two or three in a series. Mm -hmm. So just something interesting to think about. I don't know the right answer to that or the right balance, but this is a good example of when it works because we, Abigail and I were talking last night, we're still interested in this, even though there is backstory and exposition, it doesn't slow down the narrative for us or for readers. And one thing about this opening chapter too, is how do we know it's an action story? Cause we mm-hmm. talk about commercial and content genres, right? So what do you think about that? Yeah. And I love that you're asking this question because this is what had Ben and me spinning a lot while analyzing this. Harry Potter as a series and as a book is, I would argue, an action content genre. The main question we're worried about here is, is Harry going to survive or not? And inside of information that is shared through telling, through backstory, in the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, there is very briefly before we see the eyes in the hedge, a mentioning of Voldemort and how he is this dangerous wizard who has disappeared temporarily until he came back last year. So we know he's still after Harry and he is still actively trying to find a body of sorts, right? To return to full power. So it's really interesting because the death stakes, the life and death stakes are not on the table in this first chapter in our faces in the sense that Harry's life doesn't seem like it's threatened through the context of the events that are unfolding. There is the sense of, yes, he is neglected by the Dursley family and there's a lot going on with there, but isn't life or death stakes danger? Not really. So you go ahead and you look at these eyes in the hedge and what I think is particularly smart of Rowling and how she placed details right before that moment is that because we've read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, we understand how dangerous Voldemort actually is to the point of working up always to probably a life or death battle in the end. Right. You know, and I think that in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, you're maybe getting one of the best hero at the mercy of the villain scenes in the series. It's the basilisk scene, but we're not really paying attention to the life and death stakes as much in that first chapter. And I think that's what really is difficult. It's like, you know, there are elements of life and death. We're really more paying attention to Harry longing to go back to Hogwarts. Now in the second chapter, you are going to get those life and death stakes. We'll go there, right? So one thing that you always talk about is the three different types of death too. Mm -hmm. So in this first chapter, there's a lot about like, my friends forgot me. No one knows my birthday. What if they're not really my friends? So would that count as something like a psychological death? This is why I think it's so interesting because you and I have talked about this many, many times about how why we love the Harry Potter series so much is because it's not just life and death. It deals so much with coming of age and that psychological death. And to me, yeah. the first chapter is more heavily focused on psychological death. And I feel like we're, we're really focusing on character in this first chapter. Right. Okay, cool. So I agree with all that. So let's move on to number two, which is plot. What is the story really about? How do we get a sense of that in this first chapter? Yep. And you kind of did touch on this a little bit because we get that exposition, right? Mm-hmm. That's the big thing. It's like we know that 
we're going to go to Hogwarts. So what is the story really about? When we're looking at this first chapter, I think that we're looking at this boy who is really starting to question his identity and kind of where he fits within his world. And then at the same time, like those stakes are going to get even bigger in chapter two, where it becomes unraveling of this mystery of the terrible things that are going to happen. So it's tricky because when I look at what is the story really about in the first chapter versus the whole book, the whole book is really about the opening of the Chamber of Secrets. But a big thing that later happens in the Chamber of Secrets that kind of happens in this first chapter, but isn't fully explored, but gives us a taste of what's going to be something that Harry grapples with internally, is his really fear that he might actually be the heir of Slytherin. Right, right. And the the one cool thing is, like we said earlier, the exposition, it reminds us there's this thing with Voldemort. It reminds us that he tried to kill Harry as a baby and that he's still out there, even though we're not. 100% seeing that on the page as it's actually like affecting Harry, we're being reminded of that in that first chapter. And it's interesting because Abigail and I were talking to yesterday, if we took out kind of this whole first chapter and started with something like Dobby being on Harry's bed, that would give us a lot more insight into like what this particular story is about. But because it's within a series, you know, we do need to catch the reader up on what happened in book one. Right. Especially for a middle grade audience. So, okay. Question number three, point of view, who's telling the story? We're in third person limited, sticking close to Harry. I think the first sentence or second sentence feels a little bit more zoomed out and then it quickly zooms in to Harry's POV and will be a lot more consistent with third person limited throughout the rest of the story. And there's a few spots I noticed that we do zoom out a little. So like you said, that first or second sentence, I can't remember. Yeah, there it's there's a part where it's like, in fact, Harry was as not normal as it was possible to be. Harry was a wizard. And then later we zoom out when we're told the physical differences between Harry and the Dursleys. So there's a part that's like, you know, the Dursleys are that's right. know, Vernon's dark haired. And I think Petunia and Dudley are blonde and then yeah. it's, and they're bigger people. And Harry's very small and scrawny, you know, and so it's it's interesting because, again, like we talked about last time, we don't really notice this unless you're looking for it. Question number four is about character. So who should we care about the most in this opening chapter? Yeah. And Harry, of course, who yeah. is ever going to cheer for Team Dursley unless you yeah. are, so, I don't know, Barney on How I Met Your Mother. Like he's going to cheer for the Dursleys maybe. <laughs> Yeah. But then, and it's speaking yeah. of cheering for the Dursleys, I wrote down some of the little humorous things we get about Vernon because this is middle grade. And like we talked about last time, we do want that element of humor. So it's funny because we're setting up Vernon with this humor, but we're also making him a little bit unlikable or he's like the villain. Yes. Fried egg dangles from his mustache. We compare him to an angry rhino. He spits when he yells. Yes. We get a description of Dudley later that his bottom is so large it droops over the sides of his chair. Just little things. I I meant to call those out when we talked about genre. And then question number five is about setting. So where and when does the story take place? Mm -hmm. So we know that it is the second year that Harry is going to go to Hogwarts. So we're when we're looking at setting in place, we know it's his 12th birthday. So we know it's July. We know that he's on summer vacation. We know it's Privet Drive, so we're back in Surrey, London. And I think that overall, we're kind of grounding ourselves with Harry's age. We're moving with the school year and we get grounded each summer, which is where the, all the yeah. books always start. Yeah. And speaking of that, I had a note too to talk about the construction of 
each of these books. Like there's reasons story-wise why Harry needs to be with the Dursleys. But it's also kind of interesting to think about from the author's perspective, if we were to start our books in this familiar way, Mm -hmm. not only is it maybe a little easier for us because we're like, here's the format we're working with. We know we're going to drop into Harry's life in the summer. We're going to follow him as he goes to Hogwarts. But also it creates that sense of like, we can drop in as readers and feel like, okay, we're back in Harry Potter. It's the same thing, just different new year, you know? So it's kind of just interesting to note. Yep. Question number six is core emotions. So how should we feel about what's happening next or what's happening in this opening chapter as a reader? Looking at the first chapter, I think that we feel kind of bad and worried for Harry. We feel super bad. We feel super bad. (laughs) He's super miserable. He's only 12. You know, I mean, not that anyone deserves a miserable birthday, but particularly a 12 year old feeling that alone as a 12 year old and basically being bossed around. The whole day and well, then he, locked he, in his room. Like, it's bad. He just They're had bad. the best year of his life too. So yeah. like he had the best year. He made friends. He found a place he belonged. And now it's like crickets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of Harry's strengths is that he's able to build allies that are good allies around him. Yeah. And this is suffocated it from him in this moment. You know, it's like he's cut off from them and he doesn't understand why no one is reaching out. So just when you thought that you might have allies for life, now you're hearing nothing like that's, and then you're being bullied, you know? And this, this plays on his wound too, of like, you're so different that you're weird, which sets up this, this whole thing for the Chamber of Secrets. If he is the heir of Slytherin, it's like exasperating that wound a lot more. Mm -hmm. So it's very purposeful in the way that she set this up. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of leads us to the next question perfectly, which is what's at stake or why should we care what happens next? Mm -hmm. Stakes are essential to any story, right? Especially when we care about characters, because even if there are life and death stakes on the line, we won't care if that about those life and death stakes if we don't care about the character who would die in the stakes. Now, for the stakes for this first chapter, again, I think we have to go back to what whiff of death are we dealing with? We're dealing with kind of psychological death. So what are the stakes here? There are stakes in the sense of Harry Potter and is he going to be reunited with the friends that he thought were super loyal with him, right? And then I think also there are these stakes of is danger coming? And that danger that we start to feel suspense for after seeing the eyes in the henge that disappear comes full force in the second chapter, when basically Dobby tells Harry, if you return to Hogwarts, terrible things are going to happen. Right. And so what's really cool, we talked about this last time too, is this, depending on which level of analysis you kind of look at the opening chapter for, we have the psychological stakes. We care about, we're concerned about Harry as a kid, as a person. We also are reminded about this bigger war with Voldemort. So we care about that too. Mm -hmm. And then we're curious, like, how is Voldemort going to show up? Because he most likely is. What do these eyes in the bush mean? Does that have to do with Voldemort? So we're kind of playing on both the curiosity and concern Mm -hmm. on different levels. Yeah, for sure. So those are the seven questions. And you guys will see why it's interesting to look at the chapter versus the scenes in a second, because we're going to move there. Mm -hmm. But I think we can agree this is a fun case study of Like, why does this opening chapter full of so much exposition hook us? Is it just because it's Harry Potter or, you know, I don't know. I think 
we just got to some of that. So, right. No, and I think that's a great question, Savannah, because in most writing instruction, you'd say you can't have that much exposition without losing your readers, which brings us to the scene analysis. So we've already kind of gone over what the two summaries are. And I think the big case study focus for today is, is this two scenes in two chapters? Or is it one scene over the course of the first and second chapter? Yes. And just like last time, we're going to show you kind of the two different ways we could analyze this because I'll speak for Abigail. She's looked at this in so many different ways that we've probably had versions of different breakdowns over the years that she's been looking at this. But so we're going to look at like, if we just look at what we could call scene one in chapter one, what would that look like? And then we're going to look at what happens if it is a longer scene that spans two chapters? Mm -hmm. So before we even do that, Savannah, I think it's worth taking a pause and discussing why, and I believe that you believe this too, scenes and chapters are different. Right. So to me, chapters are kind of arbitrary, and I hate saying that word because it feels mean. Chapters are kind of arbitrary in the sense that there's there's certain things they need to do, but their main purpose is to control how the reader is experiencing something. So I know chapter one ends with like Harry walking into his bedroom and a creature's on his bed or he's not alone. I can't remember the exact words. So it's like that at the end, we get the setup. We're in this world. We know like what Vernon and everybody wants. We get hooked by that last, like what the heck is this creature doing? Is that who the eyes belong to? And then scenes are like little mini units of story that move the narrative along. You can break up a scene however you want. So we're going to go through the five commandments, the storytelling, and just keep this little nugget of information in mind that you can break the, the scene. You can do a chapter break at the inciting incident, the turning point, the crisis, the climax, the resolution, wherever you want to break it to create that ideal reading experience, but you can't leave the elements of a scene out. Yes. And I want to dig into that a little bit more, if you don't mind, yeah. because yeah. I've had a lot of writers agree with it. Like they agree with this and it actually, yeah. I think becomes exciting because it's a lot easier to plot out a story in scenes versus chapters. For sure. But how do you then all when a chapter ends versus when a scene ends? So we'll say yeah. hypothetically, if we go with today at the end of this, that actually it's one scene over chapter one in chapter two. Why do you think there is a benefit to having chapter one be what it is in the published draft versus just one making it chapter. one long chapter? Yeah. And so part of it is that I think there's this gratification, especially for young readers of like, I finished a chapter that feels good to me. I'm going to finish another one. I mean, and also the way that she ends this first chapter we're on something that's so interesting, right? If we left it as one long chapter, it's going to be over 5,000 words, I think. I don't know the exact number, mm -hmm. but it's pretty long. So it's almost like if you are if you introduce a reader to that experience of one 5,000 word chapter right away, that might be a little tough for some middle grade readers to swallow. If you're writing adult fantasy, that's like, you know, 800 plus pages long, that's different because mm -hmm. adult fantasy readers expect that. They want that. I'll sit in a chapter as an adult fantasy reader as long as you want me to. Just give me give me the stuff, you know? So it's to control readers' experience, to reward them for finishing the chapter, to entice them to go to the next chapter. And maybe you can answer this better because you analyze the book, but 
I'm assuming that there's not a bunch of 5,000 word chapters in this story. Chamber of Secrets, I would actually argue there are, but I don't think that that is the norm as gets further into the series. So this is speculation, but like any author, you become a stronger writer as you write forward. Now, I think that all of the Harry Potter books are masterworks. I think that they're all masterpieces in my opinion. But I do think that the execution of tightening scenes gets stronger as the series grows. Right. So it's, it's interesting because like when I was, this is I think what made actually analyzing the earlier books of Harry Potter harder than yeah. analyzing the books that are later in the series. Now, of course, like Savannah and I are certified story grid editors. So this is one way of looking at analyzing scenes. It's not the only way of looking at how they analyze scenes. But I think that ultimately I've noticed at least chamber in Chamber of Secrets, there were some chapters that had me spinning and still had me spinning. Like chapter six about Gilderoy Lockhart is the hardest chapters I have ever analyzed. So I do think that there's more of them in Chamber of Secrets, but I don't think that the main scenes exceed, you know, around 2,500, 3,000 words. Right. There's so many layers that we could get into and I'm trying to like corral myself in here. Yeah. <laughs> also, just think about from book one to book two, there's already tightening happening because in book one, we have this prologue in disguise, like we call it. And then we have, all these scenes until we get to Hogwarts. We get to Hogwarts a lot quicker in book two. Some of that is because it's book two, but also some of it is she's more efficient with what she's doing. Yeah, so now let's move on to the scenes. Just to reemphasize, the big question here is, is it two scenes, two chapters, or one scene, two chapters? So that's kind of what the case study is about. Originally in my analysis, my latest analysis before our conversation last night just yesterday you just yesterday like <laughs> mere hours away we're under 24 hours i had it as two scenes two chapters i do think that there is an argument for that i'm not convinced it's the strongest one anymore so i think that that's what we really want to dig into so savannah how do you want to tackle this do you want to just go analyzing it in a way that you think it's two scenes, two chapters, or do we just want to go for maybe the argument of one scene over two chapters? Let's do both. So let's, let's quickly do like you do your, the version that you have currently in your draft. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about if chapter one was one scene, what does that look like? Because the thing that's important is like, when we look at this, we're holding hands. We're so excited that there's two ways we could nerd out about this. Neither one are necessarily wrong or right. They're both going to get us to the same answer at the end of the day. And there's for all the story nerds out there, if we do end up looking at chapter one and two as one long scene, you can still use the breakdown that Abigail is going to go through as like if this is a beat. So like a mini scene within a scene. And and you could just see how this structure kind of builds on itself to create a bigger scene. Scenes work together to build sequences, sequences build acts and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And that, what Savannah's saying is really great and why I think this is a particularly interesting discussion because when you're looking at scenes, all scenes must be about change. So the idea here of what is the main change and that's based on the characters want and what they try to do in order to achieve that want in some way. So in the first scene, first chapter, you might see this as a scene, you might see it as a beat, 
And a beat still has to have the five commandments. Just looking at that, I would say for the motive for Harry in this first chapter, it's stay out of the Dursley's way. With that goal, we have to first look at the inciting incident. And the inciting incident, just as a recap, is an unexpected disturbance that really starts to establish a character's goal. Or if the character already has a goal, it sets them off on a new way that they have to go forward and try to achieve that goal. It's causal, meaning that a person causes it, or coincidental, meaning that some sort of coincidence happens. For me, for that first scene, if you were to look at it as a scene, or if you look at it as a beat, whatever we're going to take that, I think it's causal. I said, everyone forgets Harry's birthday. So it's kind of there, but not necessarily there. But Harry does mention everyone has forgotten him. Did you right. as something different? Well, yes. So do we want to go into the other version now or do we want to? I think so, because okay, this is where I keep leaning now. And we'll see that my okay. answer was a little bit like, eh? So, yeah, and no. so the reason why I was looking for a different inciting incident is because I'm like, well, Harry knows it's his birthday. He didn't really expect the Dursleys to remember it. He hasn't been getting communication from his friends. So like, although he can hope it's going to come, evidence doesn't really point that way, right? So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, it's a little bit of a squishy, even Abigail was kind of doing this, like, I don't know. It's a little bit of a squishy one. What I called out and what I think his goal is, is that he wants to stay off Vernon's radar like Abigail said, just by obeying whatever Vernon wants. He wants the Mason's visit to go well because that matters to Vernon. And if it goes well, he survives another day in this house. So I actually see the inciting incident. If we were looking at this whole chapter one and chapter two is one scene is when he walks into his room and Dobby's on the bed because there, this is not expected. You know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud now to like, in theory, you could question is the announcement that the Masons are coming, could that be an inciting incident? I mean, maybe, but it's like, do we care? We care more that it's Harry's birthday or that Dobby's on Harry's bed. Yeah. Dobby's different because for many reasons, but it brings magic to Harry. Like this is the magical world coming to his world and he can't ignore Dobby on his bed, sobbing, making noise, all this stuff. So he can ignore the fact that people forgot his birthday. He can't ignore Dobby. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'm probably just going to jump in here and tell you that I've already been convinced that we're going this direction, <laughs> but I still think that it's worth analyzing both of them because it's good to see where we can spin before we start making decisions. Right. And it's also important to reemphasize that, again, there's subjectivity to analyzing stories. So yeah, more focus well, on the Socratic learning methods, so the way that I see something might be way different than the way you see something, but it's about analyzing in a way that we can make an argument that there is change in advancement and plot and development of character. Yes. And for the record, the way that Abigail has this currently broken out is it, I agree with the analysis she's done. So it's not, it's not that it's irrelevant or that we don't want to look at it this way. Cause like we said, it's a beat and there's still, it's causing movement. So we're going to walk through, you'll see what I mean in a second. Yeah. But if you, so let's say you were to come up in, maybe you're creating a writing group and you're doing these first chapters mm-hmm. because you like stories as much as we do. If everyone comes to the table with a different analysis, it doesn't mean anybody's wrong. We're all going to learn from discussing this and it's going to help us make our own stories stronger. So that's right. That's right. like to point that out. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Always, always, always. Because I do think that okay. people then try to make it perfect. It's like, 
There is no yes. perfection to it. So yes. yes. Then the turning point. Now, when I look at scenes, I view the turning point partnered with the crisis decision as the most important thing that happens in a scene. They have to work together. A turning point forces a character into a crisis decision and a character who makes, who acts on a crisis decision, therefore acts. And that's what is that's agency. And it develops the character, right? So like when I say what makes the scene quote unquote work, I'm looking for is the plot advancing? Is the character being developed? Like, is there a purpose and intention to the events that are happening? And they're not just random, what's purposeful and how we're right. moving towards that value shift. The turning point for this beat slash possible scene, I say is active. And I said, it's when Dudley taunts Harry saying that he has no friends. And the reason why I argue that is because with the exception of this moment, Harry doesn't need to act on anything. He can sidestep things and there aren't consequences. And that's the big thing. A crisis decision comes with consequences, regardless of if you do something or not. And there aren't consequences to Harry not doing anything and anything else in the scene, even including the eyes in the hedge. And that is something that I like to point out because to me, that's the most interesting thing that happens in the chapter. Yeah. Because I know it's Harry Potter. I know something big is coming with magic. So I'm actually more interested with that detail. But what this does with Dudley kind of seeking Harry out to bully him forces Harry into a crisis decision of the sense of, and I guess I'll just kind of pair them right now. Yeah, go right. Yeah, a crisis decision is either a best bad choice or an irreconcilable goods decision. Best bad choice being both options are going to lead to a consequence, but which is the better? What can the character choose to best get out of this? Reconcilable goods being the inverse of that in the sense that it's going to maybe benefit the main character making the decision, but it's going to probably, you know, impact a third party or another person in a different way. Right. So this is a best bad choice for me because the idea of Harry is forced into this crisis decision of do I stand up against Dudley or not? And why there are consequences to that is because if Harry doesn't stand up for himself, he continues to allow Dudley to assert power over him. If he does stand up to him, He's out of eyesight of Petunia and Vernon. So there is a chance that maybe he can get away with this. If he does stand up to him, there are consequences of Petunia or Vernon trigger finding out. Dudley is also like a crybaby, so it's likely they'll right. find out. And he's going to be punished for that. And punishment is harsh in the Dursley house. He ends up with yeah. bars on his window. And no it's, food. And so Harry, in his kind of like middle grade poke and have fun type of way, is then going to, and I guess I'm speeding through this. So That's okay. I'll, I, think, I feel like turning point crisis and climax all go together. So I'm just doing it yeah. around. Goes into the climax and the climax is just the character actually acting on the crisis decision. So they're very tightly bound together. Sometimes there's a mini gap with that. We'll talk about that in a second. But most of the time, it's pretty immediate after the decision is not necessarily written word for word on the page, but it's understood that the character is right. going through this. And Harry does decide to stand up for himself. He pretends to perform magic. He's not actually yeah. going to perform magic. Of course, Dudley's going to freak out. And that leads to the resolution. The resolution is everything that happens after the climax. So essentially it shows us where the character stands mentally and externally based on them making that decision. I had Dudley freaks out. Opportunia punishes Harry with extra chores and a sad dinner and then banishes him to the bedroom. Uncle Vernon warns Harry of the consequences if he makes noise. 
And then the eyes that he saw in the hedge reappear at the end. And that's right. the end of the chapter. So now that we see that laid out, we can now tackle option number two, one scene, two chapters. Yes. And so again, what Abigail just broke down, that totally works as a beat or whether you call it a scene, whatever you want to say, there's structure, there's change. We get to see Harry's character expressed on the page. There's agency, there's a decision, all the stuff we need. So the way that I was seeing this spread across the two chapters, we said the inciting incident is Dobby appears on Harry's bed and he's kind of a little bit loud, even though he's about to get louder. This tweaks Harry's goal a little bit to stay out of Vernon's way because now now he has something else to worry about. Now it's not just keeping himself and Hedwig quiet, it's keeping himself, Hedwig, and this noisy house self quiet. So I saw the turning point as when Dobby brings up that there's dangerous things about to happen at Hogwarts and he needs Harry to promise not to return. And specifically, because there's a couple little blips of this happening, specifically when he's got the cake in the air and he's like threatening Harry, if you don't promise me you're not going back, I'm going to like throw this cake on Vernon's guests. At that point, Harry can either stay true to himself and his wishes of returning to Hogwarts and not promise Dobby and risk upsetting Vernon, or he can promise Dobby that he won't go back to Hogwarts and kind of turn his back on everything he wants and stay off Vernon's radar. So to me, I'm like, that's the crisis decision. It relates to the global story because Dobby's telling him, if you go back to Hogwarts, there's danger. So the climax is that Harry refuses to promise he can't do it because he wants to go back to Hogwarts. And again, this shows what Harry values. He values his friendship. He values his magical education. He wants to go where he belongs. So the resolution that I had was Dobby drops the cake on Mrs. Mason's head and Harry gets into big trouble. He did not accomplish his single, which is to stay out of Vernon's way. And the visit went terrible. So like not only did he not accomplish it, now he's in big trouble. So that's how I saw the scene over the course of the two chapters, which means if this is the way we want to analyze it, it's a super long scene. Yep. And maybe we're okay with that because of all the setup we needed to do. And she did it, like we said earlier, in an interesting way. So it's not just like in book one, here's what you missed. Right. It's told through narrative. So we're a little more accepting of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to let you know why I am siding with Savannah after this discussion, because I think that one thing you have to think about is going back to that goal and that originally established in the beginning, which is staying out of Vernon's way. Right. Basically, don't poke the bear. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Don't poke that rhinoceros. <laughs> yeah, the angry rhinoceros. <laughs> angry rhinoceros. So this means that we then, because we're thinking that's the one and the five commandments are going to unravel whether or not we change, the value shifts, like Savannah just mentioned, speaks more to the action story, speaks more to the global plot. And in the beginning of a story, it's important that we are understanding why is this relevant? How will this connect? And that then makes me curious because I think that the five commandments in that way works better. It also ties in the inciting incident of the entire story, which interestingly is like a call to adventure in reverse because basically mm -hmm. it's going to hint at what the big thing is going to be. Does Harry essentially fight the basilisk or not? Does he face the heir of Slytherin or not? 
but it's in reverse because Dobby says, don't take on this yeah. adventure versus don't accept. So yeah. I think it's an innovative way of planting a call to adventure in the story. We then have to turn our attention to if that works, this is the way we're analyzing scenes. So it's not the traditional sense of scenes. One definition of scenes you might've seen is that when, when setting changes, that a scene changes and we're, there obviously is a setting change from the garden, kitchen to the bedroom. So just kind of as a sense there, we're looking at scenes in this way of outlining it in the five commandments, just to kind of clarify any confusion there. I think the other thing that we have to ask ourselves, because this is an episode on first chapters, why does the first chapter, if it is a beat, still engage the readers? And when you said, you kind of said it there in a second, Savannah's, it's exposition, but it's done in an interesting way. So what do you think is so interesting about the first chapter that would engage the readers and get them to read forward? Yeah. Well, and one of the things is what we just called out that there is a beat within that first chapter. So it's not just a bunch of stuff. There's movement through that beat, through this interaction with Dudley. Part of it is that we're also in love with Harry Potter, that we're like, oh my gosh, give me the exposition. I don't even care right? Which is something that not all of us are ever going to probably get to do with our own books. So maybe, right? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But like, realistically, we have to look under the surface of like, okay, well, we could get lucky and have that experience. Sure. But A, there's something like that we care about, even though we don't like Vernon, right? We don't want Harry to get in trouble. So we care that he doesn't upset Vernon, that the Mason's visit goes well, that, you know, he stands up to Dudley, all these different things. There, like Abigail said, there are eyes in the bush. We know that's going to mean something. We're also curious and wondering, like, why aren't Ron and Hermione communicating with Harry? Yes. That's a big question mark. Yes. And I think you've hit the nail on the wall there with the sense of there is suspense and mystery woven into this immediately. And because we care about Harry, And I do think that this first chapter really grounds us into caring about character more than anything else. We want to figure out why the events of his life are making it more miserable than an already miserable life needs to be. So I think that that is really great and it's going to push you forward. Just to kind of reemphasize to the exposition that we're mainly talking about is the recap of Hogwarts mentioning some big characters like Snape's mentioned, Dumbledore's mentioned. Big characters are named in the exposition laying out what happened in the events in the previous book. It probably goes over the course of like maybe two to three pages. So in the grand scheme of the chapter, I think it also returns to, it's not just, let me tell you about Hogwarts, action does still happen, right? That technically kind of threatens Harry's safety in the sense that he goes from a value shift. If you were to turn back to what is the value shift now in, if it was two scenes or one scene, if you look at it as two scenes, I think that you can argue there's a value shift in the beat of something of the sense of ignored to punished like something like that. Now, one thing that I'd like to address quickly because we're going to look at it as one scene over two chapters is that the difference between a beat versus a scene, maybe in a scene there's a value shift, but in a beat there's a change in tactic. That is when we start to kind of look at this, can we argue that maybe it's not a value shift in the first chapter, it's actually a change in tactic. And there's actually a value shift only in the change of one scene, two chapters. So yeah, go ahead. So pausing there on the change in tactics. So she's referring to if his goal is to stay off Vernon's radar and to not get in trouble. It's like now that Dudley's 
now that Dudley's out here with me and bullying me, how am I going to get around this to still accomplish my goal? So his tactic changes, but nothing big picture necessarily is changing. Yes. And this is why I think I'm really going to side with one scene, two chapters, because although there is change in the scene, it's not significant enough to be a value change. It's kind of like negative to double negative, but did something really change? Not as significantly as going from I'm having a terrible birthday to I'm maybe never going back to Hogwarts at all. Right. That's much bigger in your face, negative to double negative. If you step back and you don't try to force it into two scenes, two chapters, you allow room for the events to breathe in a way that creates a more significant change that speaks the big picture story. And going back to the seven questions, like that's the big thing. What is the big picture story? And how is that moving forward? So that's really interesting. The beat thing is not something to worry about on a first draft, probably, just because I know some of us can get a little analytical. The yeah. other thing I wanted to say back to what you mentioned about the exposition is that what I noticed is is it's delivered in a way that's like I'm the thing I miss most is visiting Hagrid's hut and playing Quidditch. Mm-hmm. So it's filtered through how Harry's feeling in that moment. Yeah. It's not like Harry went to school last year at Hogwarts and he played Quidditch where Hogwarts won the school cup and blah, blah, blah. It's like, this is literally what he's thinking about. Exactly. Yes. It's organically put in the scene, which is how we want to deliver the exposition. So just something to think about because otherwise it gets to be a lot. It's something that it's almost because it's a sequel. I think that there's this rare exception to having more room to do that than if it were the first in a series. Or first book in general. One thing too, I noticed towards the end of, I think it's either in the middle of the second chapter or whatever, but one of the things that also helped me decide or, or come to the table with like, I think it's one big scene is that Harry says something like Uncle Vernon might have been able to make this deal if not for the owl. So the owl comes after, after he's done the magic, right? And after after Dobby's out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, which is different than the movie. So pay attention right. to the book. That's why I was like yeah. confused. There is no point. owl in the really. Yeah. Well, I guess there is. It delivers a letter, but yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that he's kind of telling us he's, I'm concerned Uncle Vernon could have made this deal if not for the owl. Yeah. So he's still in that goals mindset that he was in the very beginning. That's a super specific and amazing point that you just mean. It's funny because like, Part of me comes to this and I don't want to disagree with Abigail because I'm like, I know you've already turned in this draft and you've worked so hard on it. But then I, when we find evidence for stuff like this in a text, mm-hmm. both of our like nerd alerts go off <laughs> and we're like, okay, we can feel really good about this now because there's evidence. Yeah. And I just want to say, I love that you challenged it because <laughs> that helps me understand something. Sometimes when you spend so much time with something, it makes it easier for you to miss details yeah. like that. That's where an editor can be really interesting as they step in because it's yeah. fresh to them. And I think we mentioned last time, Abigail has been my editor on Sorcerer's Stone. So we are used to having these conversations where it's like, you know, the, the only reason I'm saying this is because if you are trying to find a writing buddy, find someone who's going to be more on your team than like, let me point out what you're doing wrong. Yeah. Because that's not what we're doing. We don't do that to each other. No. And it's like the best, most fun relationship and the best way to analyze stories. Yeah. So I get excited when she sees. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It's like, I'm like, oh, this 
this podcast episode is going to be even better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So I think that it's like, it's one of those things that when you get feedback in any way, you should have that trust and support of one another in a way that it's not about power here. It's about yeah helping each other just become better at stories through study. Yeah. And it's funny because even yesterday when I was like, oh, I don't know if you're going to be happy with what I'm saying. And then neither of us are like, let's push pause. Let's wait until we agree. And like, here's how we work through it. Just because we know everyone else is probably doing this in a vacuum. So anyway, the one last thing I had on my notes was I thought it was so cool that Dobby mentions how a house elf can be set free in this opening. Yes, 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 yes. So important. such a throwaway detail, but it becomes that nice mirror image to the very end when Harry does give him a sock. Mm -hmm. And I just gave myself goosebumps because I love that part in the story. It's set up in just this little throwaway detail. And a lot of times I work with sci-fi fantasy writers and they're like, I don't know how to set up these things. And I'm like, get through like five drafts and then come mm-hmm. back to your first chapter and plant the things you need. It's never going to be something you think about when you're sitting out to write that first scene. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> I love that you're saying that house elves in general, and this is the first introduction to house elves. And I think that house elves in particular are one of the coolest things, how they are implemented into the story and how they speak to bigger messages as well as essential to plot advancement and character development are one of the greatest examples that you could look at from implementing big ideas and character and plot into this like one element of story, this one character, right? So we know in Chamber of Secrets because... Dobby creates chaos that anytime Dobby shows up, he's actually one of the main forces of antagonism for Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. He's technically an ally, but he's one of the main forces of antagonism in the story. So it's like good intentions gone wrong. And pause there because that's important because a lot of people, they hear you need more conflict in the scene or what's the sense of antagonism? And they're like, well, I don't want to create a character or like, have my character trip over roots or anything. And it's like, they always think it needs to be bad. But what you're saying is Dobby's interest, he has really good intentions. It just misaligns with what Harry wants. If I can teach anything to anyone in this episode through that, that I, <laughs> lens of like, what is important with antagonist? I really like to clarify that antagonist does not equal villain, okay? There is a villain in the story. In an action story, there will be a villain. There has to be a hero, victim, villain, triangle of sorts. That villain is Voldemort, right? right? In this book, in the series. So technically Tom Rillo, but you know, same thing. Yeah. So I think that going to that idea, antagonist very often actually is a supporting character that is on the team of the main character because on the scene level, you have to, the whole thing about an antagonist is just that their want is conflicting with the other character's want or their way of getting, getting a want right. conflicts with that. Like, look at any traditional story of any sort. Like, a mentor is very often an antagonist for a hero because they're challenging them. And yes, when you're they push on that broken. wound. Yeah, and they, they want the best thing for the character. The most fun example is in a romance where it's like the other lead is the antagonist. Yep. And you wouldn't normally think that because it's like, oh, but they're the love interest. Yeah, they push on the wound and help the character grow. And they just like the easy example is they might be fighting for the same job. So that puts them against each other, but they're not a villain. Yep, exactly. Conflict is what makes stories because conflict is what creates change. 
So the thing is, all stories need conflict. All scenes need conflict with the very rare exceptions, maybe like less than 1% scenes that are just exposition. But ultimately, that idea of conflict is going to get the character to change because until we have conflict, we don't have a reason to change. The other thing I just quickly want to point out that how fun is this if you think about it from Dobby's perspective, Mm -hmm. because he faces a crisis too. Which to me, when I can identify other characters in the background that are making their own decisions, I'm like, this is a a good working scene. Like Dobby wants one thing. Like you said, he's the antagonist of this scene. Harry wants another thing. When Dobby can't get the promise from Harry, he faces a crisis. Do I leave or do I try to force him to make a decision and say, I promise? A big thing with that is Dobby worships Harry. The point of tears. And he knows, I mean, there's stakes for Dobby too, which makes it more interesting. He could get in trouble with the Malfoys. He could lose Harry. He could upset Harry. There's a ton of, he could be seen by the muggles. That's cool to think about it from different lenses. I always like to point these things out because if you get stuck writing a scene, you could switch into the antagonist point of view and say, well, what would they do? What's their motivation? And then maybe that'll help you construct the action on the page, which Mm -hmm. could then help you create the five commandments and that movement. Mm -hmm. So this was a fun one. And I'm interested to see when we do book number three. And maybe someday we'll do a bonus Lockhart episode because every book has her. Yeah. Same with the Diagon Alley chapter in book one. They're really hard. It's like every time he goes to Diagon Alley and part of it is because there's probably so many beats that you're like, how do we break this up? Yeah. So I know all of us ran into that issue in the Diagon Alley chapters in our book. Oh my gosh. So So hard. Really tough to analyze. Someday we'll we'll come back and do one of those episodes. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, Savannah, (laughs) it's so wonderful to have you. I know it's longer for everyone out there, but I hope that you have tons of great things to take away and that that time was of good use to you. So we look forward to sharing this with you and we look forward to bringing you the first chapter of book three, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So be on the lookout for that. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on Lit Match. You can learn more about what makes a great first chapter and how to analyze the big and small picture in the show notes. I had a great time analyzing this first chapter with Savannah, and I can't wait to get together again to bring you another fantastic discussion about first chapters with the third book in the series, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. If you're enjoying Lit Match or have any suggestions or requests, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer you. If you have some time, don't forget to write a review. I really would appreciate it. This helps me by telling iTunes that this podcast matters, which means that I can reach more writers like you who are either in the career process or need help researching literary agents or would like to learn more about how to prepare their manuscripts for traditional publishing. Until next time, happy writing. Keep persevering. I know the trenches can be rough, but the difference between a writer who gets published and one who does not is the writer who gives up or the writer who keeps going. You can make your book the best it can be before querying a literary agent. And through that process, you can find the best literary agent for your business and writing career. I'm cheering you on. I can't wait to hear when you sign with the literary agent and celebrate your book when it comes out.